Hello, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, my guest today is John Robb, an old friend who was really the impetus to me starting this Story Blender uh, years ago. We'd met at a conference, and I suggested the idea, and John loved it, inviting me to join his group of podcasts run through Suspense Radio. Now, besides running Suspense Radio, John is also the founder of Suspense Magazine and the CEO of Suspense Publishing. If you like thrillers, suspense, mystery, or horror, and you haven't checked out Suspense Magazine recently, then you're missing out. It's a great resource, and I highly recommend it. As an expert on the genre of suspense and as a publishing industry professional and podcaster himself, I thought it would be great to have him join me here on an episode of The Story Blender. So, John, thanks for being here. Stephen, always a pleasure, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. And so uh, we were chatting off the air for a bit about our families, and um, you were telling me what a great experience it is to be a grandfather. <laughs> and, so, um, and so I just wanted to congratulate you. I didn't even know that you had grandbabies yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have one, uh, a little over two and a half years old. She was born on May 4th, so she's a Star Wars baby. Um, May 4th. <laughs> yeah, which is good. You know, may the 4th be with you. So, yeah, oh, so she's a Star Wars baby, so that's always fun. Yeah, it's great, man. I tell, I tell everybody the best part of having kids is having grandkids. And, I, <laughs> I, <laughs> and I'm sure that you get lots of stories. You get to relive the stories, too, that, um, that your kids live through. Yeah, it's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like a sequel. Like you've done it once before, and now this is the sequel. <laughs> That's funny. I um, when my kids were were little, I always told them this continuing bedtime story. I don't know if I ever told you this or not. But, I don't know. But um, so anyway, we would. I would tell them a story about this fantastic land where there were wizards and witches, and it's kind of like Narnia or Lord of the Rings land. Okay. Um, and uh, and then I would get to an exciting spot, and I would say, I'll tell you more tomorrow. And my daughters would be like, no, no, tell us more tonight. I said, no, I'm going to tell you more tomorrow. Then the next day, I would say, as you remember, and I would fill them in on what happened the night before, and then I'd make up the next episode. And so I did this about 300 nights a year for about 10 years. As I told this continuing story, it just got bigger and bigger, more complex and everything. And so now that I have a grandchild coming on the way, it'll be my chance to sort of re-enter the world of Perea and uh, and all of these adventures that all of these characters had, and I'll probably be telling telling these same well, not the same because I just made the whole thing up. And I don't remember <laughs> it all. <but laughs> Your kids remember, but you probably don't. <laughs> the funny thing is, they do remember stuff. Like of I'll say something, they'll be like, "No," they'll say, "You know, the peaks of the eastern realm were nowhere near the southern swamp." I'm like, "Oh, okay," <laughs> you know. Um, you but say, well, they are now. Sick. Yeah. Sometimes I'd get sick of the story because I'd been yeah. doing it for years, right? This I continuing know. story. And so I would say, and they all lived happily ever after. And my daughters would be like, no, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yes, they did. They said, no, something went wrong. And so it was funny because even when my kids were like four and five years old, they yeah. knew that to have a great story, you need something to go wrong. And uh, it's just instinctive in them. And yeah, so it was, you uh, need the was, tension, man. Yeah, you need that tension. And and so uh, it was when I was thinking about stuff I wanted to talk with you about today, um, I thought, I remember you gave me your definition of the difference between science fiction, mystery, oh. and <laughs> suspense. Yeah, Do you I remember that? Yeah. that? Can you, can oh, yeah, that I again? Yeah. oh, yeah. So 
the, to define the genres. Uh, the genres yeah. is what I did. Yeah, so I broke down mystery, horror, thriller, and suspense, and then I threw in science fiction. So what, uh, you, want, you want me to explain all four again? Yeah, so what yeah, is go this? through it, yeah. So, so suspense is you're walking up a mountain and you're walking up slowly and you kind of see maybe like some, like, you know, like a bloody, like a bloody prince. You kind of don't know what's hearing. You, you kind of hear sounds in the trees and all of a sudden you make it up to the top and it's kind of been revealed, you know, what it is. But it's a slow process. It takes you up in many different things. When it's a mystery, you have clues. It takes you on that same pace, but you get clues. You see the knife. You see a clue here. You see a ripped piece of paper. You get to the top, and then everything is revealed. So it's kind of the same pace. It's just a different way to kind of tell the story. When it's horror, you can do anything you want because horror really <laughs> has no boundaries. You can, I mean, you can do anything. You can take me up that hill fast. You can take me up that hill slow. You can have things jumping out at me, scaring me, pulling me in, whatever you want to do, and then that's horror. Thriller, you run me up the hill. you got bombs flying all over the place. I get to the top, and I just jump off because I'm so freaking going so fast. <laughs> Science fiction, you can use any one of those things you want. Just set it on Mars, and you're done. <laughs> and there you go. That's science fiction. <laughs> I heard someone say that, um, you know, Star Wars, and this was interesting, I thought. They said Star Wars was um, like a f- outer space fantasy, not so much science fiction. Which I agree I with was, that. It's kind of interesting, you know? Yeah. It's like... Uh, I don't know what exactly science fiction is, except for taking your definition, sticking it on another planet. But, yeah. but, um, but I think it does have a lot of fantasy elements to it, you know. And yeah, I mean, science fiction. I think of a lot of like dystopian world. I think of the science part of a fictional world, whereas. Yeah. Fantasy is like Lord of the Rings. That's not science fiction to me. That's fantasy. And yeah. Harry Potter is more fantasy. That's not science fiction. So Star Wars falls into that same category of fantasy, where The Matrix is more science fiction because it oh, yeah. uses the science part of the world to tell its story about why this is happening. And the other parts, it's just a whole other world. It's like Earth doesn't exist. This yeah. is the universe, and this is yeah. how it is. Yeah, That's interesting, yeah. <clears throat> I know we first, um, in a quick intro, I mentioned that we'd met many years ago, and I think we first met after my book, The Night, came out. I think you read The Night. Yeah, at Thriller Fest up in New York City. And uh, I still remember there was some clue I had in The Night with candles, and you came up to me and you said, (laughs) It was the candles! It was the candles, dude. Yeah, man, for people who didn't read the book, I, I won't give it away, but candles are very much a part of the capturing and the, you know, the uh, exposing of the villain because you keep them hidden throughout the book. Yeah. <clears throat> and then it's the candles that kind of lead it to And you remember talking to me about that, and you're like, yeah, I actually had to research the burning of the candles, and I think yeah. it was your brother yeah. who was in the military, and you would go off like him, and I was like, yeah. So I remember talking memory. about that. Yeah, you have a good memory. That's yeah. that is true. My brother is in the military, and um, I'm able to tap into him for um, you know for interesting 
he's a doctor. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a colonel and a doctor and um, in the Air Force. And so, like, I'll ask him, you know, what's a good way to kill someone and not leave any evidence behind? And he'll be like, oh, that's easy, and he'll tell me how to do it. Yeah. And we, I'm always wondering, like, if the NSA is listening in on our phone calls or anything because he's, you know, a colonel in the military. Well, I'll tell you <laughs> something interesting. We just were able to go, um, Shannon and I were able to go to Dean Koontz's house and sit with him and interview him. Oh, wow. And so he told us a story, and this is going to scare everybody because it scared the hell out of me. So he told us a story that he was writing something, and he needed his researcher to research the Austin International Airport. And because he goes, I need, I need to know whatever it was. And so his researcher, yeah. and inside Dean's house is his office, and he has his people that kind of work and help him. So his researcher was kind of doing it kind of, he was going down to his office to kind of see what the guy had come up with. He had said, come on down, this is what I got, blah, blah. As soon as he goes down there, all of a sudden, the guy's computer <clears throat> turns gray. It just, like it, like, like it shuts off. And huh. then about a second later, a picture comes across of the guy looking at his computer and the FBI saying, what are you doing? What? Uh-huh. Dean was, was like, that is the scariest thing he has ever seen because he must have been researching or doing something, getting into some portal of maybe finding out about an airport like fire escapes or whatnot to where uh-huh. the FBI literally tapped him and got him. But the funny thing is, is the picture, because Dean was like, wait a second, he goes, because there was no camera that was like on or anything else. It was a camera behind the screen that people don't realize is there and you can never turn off and it's always on. And that's how they took his picture. And then they sent it to him like, we know what you're doing. What are you doing? So Dean is like, great. He goes, you know, that just put me on another list of looking at <laughs> That's but crazy. Yeah. No, I don't know yeah. anything about that. That's interesting. Yeah. And he said he literally sat there and he was down there when they were talking about it, and it happened in front of him. And he put that in his book, Devoted, which will be coming out soon. Oh, wow. That, so there's a scene in there. If people read that book, you're going to see that you're going to see that in there. So that was really cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Now, you've, I mean, for your magazine, you've interviewed a lot of really interesting people um, over the years. Are there any other interviews besides this recent one with Dean Koontz that jump out that you're like, oh, man, that was really an interesting, you know, interview? Yeah, I mean, we've interviewed um, Jeffrey Deaver a couple times, and he is outstanding. Standing. I mean, when he gets into it and he starts going, he's one of the best interviewers that you can listen to as far as, um, like, on a podcast or anything. Yeah, he gives you yeah. great information. Um, there's a couple others. Nelson DeMille was another one that was really good. One of the weirdest ones that we've ever had, Jeff Ayers and I have ever had for our show, Beyond the Cover, there was an interview. There was a guy that we were talking to who was driving home drunk. And so, and he was, we were interviewing him while he was driving home, and he was not doing very well. And we were like, you know what, we're going to leave you on the air here just to make sure that you get home okay in your driveway. Oh, my goodness. That one was a little odd. Um, I won't give his name just in case. Yeah, no, you don't want to. I think it was on the air, so if people want to go back and see all the history of that (laughs) somewhere. (laughs) Um, But 
I mean, you know, Stephen King was very interesting. James Patterson was great. Laurel K. Hamilton is another great interview because we start, for some reason, whenever I interview Laurel K. Hamilton, the conversation always steers into the sex realm. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you read her books, you would understand why. She's a very sexual person with her Anita Blake books. So those are some of the ones that come to mind, I mean, yes. that are very memorable for me. Um, I'm still waiting to see. There's, there's still a couple authors. There's three authors that I've never been able to talk to that I would love to talk to just, be, just because of who they are. Is John Grisham, Dan Brown, and J.K. Rowling. I've yeah. been very close with Dan Brown once, but I never got him on. The other two I've had, like, no success at all. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I don't, I don't know that um, J.K. Rowling does. We looked into that, too, for the Story Blender here, and um, she's like, her people were like, she only does Twitter to stay in touch with fans and stuff. So Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, and if she does any interviews, it's mainly all U.K. and Britain right. things, and it's only very, very, very big things. Like, I think Brown and Grisham, they're only going on the Today Show. They're only going on big, you know, places. But the yeah. funny thing is, is I'm like, which is great, but those people are probably already going to buy you, and those interviews are short, and they're not in-depth, but what yeah. we do and, like, what you do, it's yeah. a lot more in-depth, and there's a lot more into it. And I think it's a lot more fun because we both kind of treat our interviews as like we're doing now. This is how it is at Thriller Fest. If people yeah. don't know what it is, like, we're just sitting around talking. That's all <laughs> we're doing. We're just sitting yeah. around the, the fire at the bar. We're just talking. And that's, that's, this is what this show is like. Yeah, I've uh, I've really enjoyed you know listening to your programs and also just getting to know you over the years and same and um, when when you um, when you with so with, okay so with suspense publishing mm-hmm. when you're looking at people's work um, to see if you want to publish it or work with them you know bring them on as authors and so on what are some of the things that you're really looking for as far as their writing or their storytelling or what is it that really grabs you. Well, there's a couple things. The first thing is, and this is the number one mistake that a lot of writers do when they submit to publishing companies, is they've not had their work professionally edited. Hmm. And when I say professionally, I mean you've taken it to somebody who does this for a living, who doesn't know who you really are, uh, and will give you the honest truth about your work. Yeah. Because if you just give it to your friends and your family and it's like, well, my mom thinks I'm a great writer. Yeah, well, your mom <laughs> thought you were a great singer and you sucked at American Idol. It's the same thing. <laughs> so it's like, no, look, you have to get it to somebody who will tell you the real story. about Because a lot of people will say, well, why am I not successful? You know, Why am I not selling? It's like because you're not paying attention and you're not taking the criticism that you need to take. You take criticism, Stephen, with your writing. I know yeah. you do. Everybody does. There's not one writer in the world that finishes a manuscript, sends it in, and the publisher's like, this is great. There's no changes. That <laughs> never happens. Yeah, I never. mean, being open to that is, is hard, you know, because you spend months or even years working on something. You're like, this is the best that I have to offer the world, and you send it off, and then someone's like, I think you should change this, or this doesn't make sense, or I can't picture the scene, or whatever it is. Right. And you're just like, what? 
No. Because in your mind, you know what you're trying to say, but then when you relay it to somebody else, they're like, I'm not in your head, so you have to spell it out a little bit more than I do because I need to know what you're thinking. Because sometimes we try to, and and I've done this like with writing, like I'm trying to be so secretive, I don't want to give anything away, that I'm not giving enough away to where it's confusing. Yeah, it's interesting. Some people will say, you know, when I bring that up and I've looked at people's work and I'll say, well, I, you know, um, I don't really know what's going on or whatever. And they're like, oh, well, I'm trying to keep the reader in suspense. And right. so I'm not giving them information. And they're really doing the exact opposite. The secret to suspense is giving information. Right. You know, it's like... Sometimes so false when, information. Yeah. And and so when people read read the stuff, you know, they're like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Well, that's not keeping them in suspense. You've got to get them in suspense yep. by revealing. And, and how you do a mystery is concealed, but suspense is revealed. Right. And so, exactly. yeah. And, yeah. And so yeah. that's one of the biggest things. When people send us manuscripts, they're not edited. They, they've read through it a couple times. Maybe, like I said, their mom or whatever did it. But it's just not right. Um, the other thing that we look for is, and this is very important, are you willing to market yourself? Because if you're not willing to market yourself and you think, oh, great, you know, I got a publishing contract and my book is out there, and blah, blah, then no, that's not going to happen. Um, you market yourself, again, all the time. You do this show. There's not a lot of authors that do a show that help to market their work and get themselves out there. That yeah. doesn't happen. Um, and so you need to have that kind of an author that's willing to hit the social media, go the ground running, go the extra mile to go to conventions, and also keep learning the craft to make themselves better. Um, that's the other thing. Don't get stuck on your laurels just because this was it, and you think that you're just going to do it again. You want to try to make yourself better. You know, a piano player or a guitar player, just because they're in a band doesn't mean they don't practice anymore. They yeah. continually practice to continually make themselves better. Because writing is an art form, like painting, or like playing the piano, or playing the guitar. You have to keep doing it over and over and over to make yourself better. Otherwise, you never will. Football, anything, anything that you do, you have to keep doing it to make yourself better. So we want to we look at authors in those ways. Can we work with you? Are you willing? To, are you open to changes? Are you willing to do things like that? Because it's a relationship that we want to have long term, not just okay. Here's your book. Have a nice day, and then you're gone. Which is what a lot of publishers do out there. I'm telling you, yeah. a lot of people need to watch out because there's a lot of publishers. If they're not professionally editing your work when you're sending it to them, and they're just taking and publishing at what you give them, they're not a good publisher. They're not helping you as a writer be better at all. That's not helping you at all. And so you need to find those. And agents are important, you know, and we take stuff from agents. And we like things from agents because we know it's been through the vetting process because that agent's not taking you on unless you have good work. And that's what makes agents important to publishers because they know that you've been through the vetting. Um, The other thing, too, is and, uh, and uh, people don't understand this, and we see this all the time at Thriller Fest, and we do Pitch Fest, and we hear people talk. If you're already, like, writing a series and you've self-published it, and then you want to get with another publisher, that yeah. series that you wrote is done. Yep. Either you're going to keep self-publishing it, or it's done, because no publisher is going to want to go and say, oh, you've already done three books, and you want to give me book four? What? what? No. 
they, they don't want that. They want to start you at the beginning so they can grow this process because you've already tainted yourself by putting out work that, again, if you self-publish, it's probably not the greatest. I'm sorry, 95%, it's not. I, sorry if you're, you, know, you think you're one of the 5%, but you're probably not, too. So, you know, hey, I just keep it real, you know, David. I just, I get tell everybody, <laughs> I keep it real. But, yeah, no, I, so that's the thing. It's yeah, like, you, you're, you're one of the 95% that when you do that, you're, you're, you're killing yourself. You're killing that character. So you need to then be done and start totally fresh if you're going to go to an agent. Don't give them work you've already self-published. Yeah. And when you tell them you've self-published it and you think that that's a positive, that is not a positive. When I see somebody say, yeah, I self-published, you know, five books, there's a reason why you've self-published. I love to use sports analogies. There's yeah. a reason if you're a basketball player and you're always wide open why that is, because you can't shoot. <laughs> okay? They're leaving you I've open because you they've watched film, like and they know you can't shoot, so they're like, yeah, leave that guy open because he can't hit a shot anyway. Yeah. So if you're self-publishing five books, me as a publisher and agent is going to be like, oh, there's a couple things. Either you're too stubborn or you're just not good enough. Mm. And that's what you need to get over. You need to get over your ego. And, and, and you know, because that's, because uh, if you can't, you're not going to make it in the business. You're going to fizzle out because you're yeah. going to write five books, you're going to sell ten copies, and you're going to be like, this is a waste of time and you're never going to do it again. When you could be great. Yeah. See, so... Now you do. Now I know that you guys do work with your, um, you know, your authors. I've talked to people who've written with you uh, or for you, time. but also with your with your wife. She does a lot of the editing. Or, oh, well, yeah. yeah, she does work with the with the authors too. And and so if we keep them engaged a hundred percent of the time. Yeah, all the time. But you know why? Because it's still at the end of the day, it's your work. It's yeah. not my work. You're the conceptualized person of the one who put it all together. You're the one who's in control of your world. I'm trying to show you where you've made gashes in it that can be filled in. You know, yeah. you have a little hole here, let's put some putty in it. You have a little scratch here, let's cover it up. It's those things. That's what we're doing. Editors are not going in and, and saying, you know, taking the shining and making it and turning around to all of a sudden it's the, wo it's the wife that's now doing all the killing. Yeah. That's not what it is. It's just making that story stronger for what you've already put out there. That's all we're doing. Now, when you guys, um, you know, you're evaluating someone's work or someone's sending it in, you're looking at it, and it's a suspense story or horror or whatever, you know, it's one of the genres that you guys specialize in, um, and you read this, and you're like, okay, this is pretty well edited. It's, it's pretty solid. Yep. What is it that you say, what is it that makes a book go from, you know, possible to be like, we have to publish this? I mean, it's always about the writing. It's always yeah. about the story. Did you tell a good story? Did you keep me wanting to turn the page? Did you have tension on every page, even if it's something small? Um, I'm going to use an analogy by you one time, because I remember hearing you one time, you were talking about you're writing a book, and I want to follow along with your process, because you did a scene one time where you were like, and... The, 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 the woman went to the trunk. 
I don't know why she went to the trunk, but then she opened the trunk. I didn't know what was going to be inside the trunk until she opened it. And then there was a box inside the trunk. Oh, what the hell's inside this box? And that's the layer of the unwrapping of the Christmas present that I want to see. I want all these layers to be pulled away to where I get to that box, and then I open it, and then whatever happens, happens. And that's what you need to build your reader to. And the other thing, too, is, and, and then now, and this could be personal preference because sometimes Shannon yell, yell, you know, says, "No, I like that stuff." But this is for yeah. me. I don't need to know the color of everything if it doesn't <laughs> mean anything. Yeah, I understand giving me some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of color or something instead of putting me in a white room. But I don't need to know that the table is Victorian and then the tea set is from your mother and then that the doily on the, you know, on the kitchen counter is from your aunt. Does that have anything to do with the story? Because if it doesn't, I don't need to know three pages of the inside of your kitchen. You yeah. can tell me that you have a country kitchen that was built in the, in the 60s with the original cabinets. And I know what country kitchens look like. Yeah. I gotcha. <laughs> you know, I gotcha. And, and that sometimes people put in a lot of what, you know, what we like to call info dumps. You're just yeah. dumping a bunch of info that means nothing. And I'm like, okay, keep going. And if I'm skimming over because I really don't care and I know that's what you're doing, that's yeah. not a good thing. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I sometimes teach people, you know, that descriptions are not there to describe. And as soon as I say that, people are like, what are you talking about? Descriptions right. are there, there to evoke. So if the description doesn't evoke some emotion or response or whatever in the, in the reader, it probably can be dropped. Um, you know, let's say that you're driving along and all of a sudden you see a stop sign. And if I say he saw a red stop sign or whatever, it's like, who cares? This is why am I drawing attention to it? But if I said... You know, the stop sign was the color of dried blood or something. Then it's like, that's evocative. Or right. if there's pock marks in it because people shoot at the stop sign, we know, oh, they're probably in the country somewhere and uh, or downtown Detroit, but they're probably Could in be. the country somewhere, you know, and kids take pot shots. And then we also know there's people around with guns, whatever. So it's evocative. But, but I think what you said is totally true. Some people spend so much time with the hair oh, color man. and the eyes and whatever and the doilies and stuff. Yeah, it is. I'm just like, I'm like, now, if it's important, if the tree's red for a reason and I'm going to yeah. find that out, I get it. But if you're just throwing a bunch of dump in there because, you know, either you're trying to up your word count or you're doing something, then you need to figure out and say, where can I build a tension here? Yeah. You know, where can I build tension here? Where can I build tension here? Where can I build tension? That's what you need to be doing. Agatha Christie would do this. She would write her entire story, and then once the story is done, she would be like, okay, now I've got to figure out who the killer is. Yep. So then she'd go back through, and then she'd have to put in who's going to be the killer, and, how, and then she's going to fit in all those clues and how it's going to work. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, because um, I've read a couple of interviews by her, and that's what she did. She would write the entire story and then say, okay, now I've got to figure out who the killer is. <laughs> That's kind and of the that, way I approach it. I, I didn't know that um, she did that. You know, sometimes yeah. when I've written a book, I get to the end, and it's like two weeks before the end, and I'm like, now who's the bad guy? Right. <laughs> it's like, but that's the exact opposite of a lot of people who outline their stuff endlessly. Oh. And um, Well, you and I agree outlining is just not it, – it's mundane. It's not for me, you know. I mean, there are some people, like Jeffrey Deaver you mentioned, he's, he does these prodigious outlines, he hundreds does. of pages of, uh, you know, outlines, and – and then writes the story. So, I mean, that works 
in his approach, but um, but I find it's that funny though. But when you talk to him, sometimes fifty yeah. percent of the outline is not even in the story. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because he still organically does stuff. I mean, yeah. you can't help it. Stephen King is the king of like organic. I mean, yeah, no he kidding. doesn't outline hardly at all. Um, now, when you uh, when you're looking at a story, not just uh-huh. a book, but I know both of us like movies, and we've talked about oh, yeah. horror movies that we like over the years and so on, like that. Um, what are the aspects of a story besides the tension? that really make it something that are unforgettable to you? You know, I like, again, um, you know, serial killers have been out there forever, but can you put a different twist on it? I mean, can you have it in a different vein, or is it just the same serial killer story, and is it the same super cop, you know, doing this and that? This is the one thing that I don't, this is the one thing that gets on my nerves more than anything in stories today. Convenience. Hmm. The cell phone just happens to be there when you need it. Yeah. You, can, you know, the answer just happens to show up when you want it. The reason why I always go back to the, to the Sherlock Holmes and the Agatha Christie's and those kinds of stories in those veins before technology was because police and investigators had to investigate and you had to put out clues. Mm. Mystery writers and things today are lazy because yeah. they don't give you clues anymore because everything is NCIS and CSI where you have that girl or that guy in the back room punching everything up on the computer telling you everybody's life story in five minutes and everything's <laughs> always solved. And I'm like, there's no one doing that, okay? Yeah. So stop. And it's like, so stop using that kind of thing because that is like not even close. And so they've made it so easy for the police and the investigators to find the people out that you now have to have these killers or whatnot do these things so superhuman that it yeah. almost becomes laughable at times. Like, like really? Like, come on. Um, so that's yeah, the thing no, that I gets on me yeah, that's is good. the convenience. That's Stop having everything of convenience, like right at the guy's fingertips. Like, oh, you know, like he needs a stick of gum, and then all of a sudden he opens up the drawer, and wow, there's gum that he never knew he had for five years, or something stupid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I that's the thing. That bugs me, too, and I always think of it as, like, a kind of um, what you just said is as soon as they need something, it's there. Yeah. And that's like that coincidence, and that happens so often at climaxes of books, where characters, you know, they suddenly need to know karate. Oh, good thing I studied karate back when I was in high school. Wow. Right. And it's like, what? That's convenient. You know, right. that's like, oh, well, that's easy to use. I mean, you if know. you look, how many murders in this country are actually solved, percentage-wise? That's a good question. I don't know Maybe off the top of my head. 25 30%, you would think? Because there's so I, many unsolved crimes out there. Yeah. So if that's the ratio and if that's the percentage, then why is your cop always perfect? You know, he has to have moments where he's not perfect. He has to have moments where he's confused. He has to have moments where he's down and out. He has to have moments where he loses because it's the losses that make characters stronger than the wins. Hmm. And that's what you need to have in your character. They need to have flaws. They need to have been beaten down. Something had to have happened to them. They need to experience pain. Something to where it's, you know, if, and, I'm gonna, and I'm not going to give away the ending, but if people read the new Clive Cussler that Boy Morrison wrote called The Final Option, he did something in that book that is 100% unheard of 
in any action-adventure series you're probably ever going to read. And I applauded him for it, and I, could, and I, and I was like, Boyd, you, you did it. You finally were gutsy enough to do it, and Clive was gutsy enough to do it. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you so much, because it's not always, and they live happily ever after. Yeah. You know, it's not. Patricia Cornwell did it. And I was one of her favorite series. She had a character called Leland Gaunt, where um, the same thing that James Patterson did, Sanjay, he was not captured in the first book. If people read along with the spider, that's not the right story for Sanjay, because he arrived earlier, and he was a nemesis of Cross before he was finally caught. Hell, he sent his daughter a cat. And the cat and the a kitten, and the daughter loved the kitten. And then Sanjay calls up Cross and was like, "Now, whenever you see that cat, you're going to think of me because I'm in your house." Yeah, and he couldn't right. take it away from his daughter because she loved the kitten. Yeah, those are the things that you need to have. Those are the things because Cross lost. He was beaten. Finally beaten, you know, Case Darpetta was beaten. She couldn't get Leland Gott. He won. She ends up getting, in the end, the sequel, but you didn't know that. You didn't know he was going to come back. You had yeah. no idea. That's what made it so interesting. Because then you have a story when you see that and you're like, like, like the show 24, anybody but, anybody but Kiefer Sutherland could have died in that show at any time because they set you up that way. They killed characters off, and you're like, oh, my God, you killed that guy off. I thought he was a popular <laughs> character. But if you it's have true. that tension, like, unlike, you know, we all like James Bond, but the problem with James Bond is the serious flaw with James Bond is this. You can put him in any situation you want, and I feel no tension because I know he's never going to die. So, yeah. the, so, so the thing is, well, how is he just going to get out of this one? So I find that kind of boring at times, unless you've said it to where maybe he does something happen to him. Maybe he does get beaten and he has to, you know, I think, um, I forget what it is, but you did something with Bowers at a time where he got beat up and I think he was out of, he was incapacitated for, yeah, he's for a been, little bit. He's and so rough, it's like, but that makes it like, oh, if he does go into this house, maybe he will get hit over the head with a freaking baseball bat and be in the hospital for three weeks. I don't know. Yeah. But that's what I want to be able to think of. That's what I want to know. That uncertainty, that's, yeah. um, that's a huge aspect. And, you know, whenever we write series characters, um, like you mentioned Patrick Bowers or, you know, Patricia's. Yeah, or Reacher or anybody. Reacher. Um, yeah, a lot, sometimes that is, it, it's not present. And, you know, one of the things that I always strove for was I never wanted to write a cookie cutter book that was exactly like a previous one. You just have a different, you know, villain and a different love interest. And I talked to you about this and, and I was like, okay, this is the last Bowers book. And you're like, is it really? Cause it needs to be not because you didn't like the series, but because you didn't want like me to endings. fall into that. Yeah, it did fall into that. And so it ended up that I did a couple spinoff books, but then I'm like, no, John, this is it. It's the last book. And so finally I, I closed it up, and I felt good about that. I mean, there were 11 books in the series, and I never ended up repeating a plot point. But no. but I was like, if I would have kept going, I know I would have. I would have had to. I mean, you, you only have so much, you know, realistic, believable story material for any one character. Well, when you look at the back of, and if, if, if you were to take all of James Patterson's, Alex Cross's book, and read the yeah. back of the books, how many times is this the most diabolical villain he's ever faced? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it's like, but this is why, what was the lead up? And this is why I felt it was important for you to end the series. And, and, I, and I told you, I think, because what was the lead up to Harry Potter book number seven? We all knew Deathly Hallows was it. But what was all the talk about? Does Harry die? Yeah, or Hermione or Ron. Who's she oh, yeah. going to kill? Yeah. Are they good? To where Stephen King had to come in and say to J.K. Rowling, don't kill Harry. No one mentioned oh, really? Ron and Hermione. They could have died. Yeah. And she did kill off one of the twins, and a couple other people died. I mean, she killed off Sirius, which was very good. Um, you know, because people die, and that's just life. Not yeah. everybody lives. That's why I thought The Force Awakens was great when Han Solo died. Good. Because that's what needed to happen. Yeah. He needed to shake it up. So that's why I was telling you, when you know it's the last book, right. and I'm going in knowing this is it, I don't know if Bauer, now I don't know if Bowers is going to live. Now, I know if you put him in a position in page 15, he's probably going to get out of it. But right. I don't know if he's going to live. I don't know if his daughter's going to live. I don't know yeah. what's going to happen. Maybe his daughter dies in the last book, and that puts him into an alcoholic drug rage where he is just in a freaking loony bin, and that's how you ended it. I don't know. Yeah. But... I, I knew that it could end in any way, shape, or form where you weren't just going to say, and Bowers lived happily ever after. I right. think because that was not going to happen. Yeah. No, I, I think, you know, I re, as I was working on the series, I was thinking of the conversations that we'd had, and I was like, okay, I don't want this to become cookie cutter, don't want it to become predictable. And um, I was like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. And that's one of the, you know, the exciting things about writing, you know, organically is like, I seriously don't know. There was one of my books was due at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was 10 in the morning before I figured out the ending. <laughs> <laughs> that's pressure. Yeah, I was like, I mean, I knew kind of how stuff ended, but, like, uh, the the very end scene, I was like, oh, now I know what has to happen. Right. And, but then uh, you've got to go back through and say, oh, shit, did I have enough clues? Enough clues, right. To lead it right. up to that, or yeah. did I clue it someplace else? And then you have to kind of go back through and, you I think know, you have to, and, and I yeah. think that's, you know, that's part of the gig, you know, what you, what you said about Agatha Christie, it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, when when you um, when you watch a horror movie, because I know that w- I haven't really had that many people on the show who really like horror movies and stuff, but but um, and as you mentioned earlier in your descriptions of everything, you're like anything can happen in a horror movie. You can bring monsters out and supernatural and stuff like that. Um, when I think of a horror movie and suspense, I think of suspense as I'm afraid to look away. Uh, from the movie and horror I'm afraid to look and so that's just like one of the things that I think of is well is this scene going to be horrific in the sense that I don't really want to look I don't really want to see it or is it going to be suspenseful in the sense that I don't want to miss anything I don't want to look away right yeah like in a mystery um, like we just saw Knives Out I don't know if you've seen Knives oh, Out yeah. yet yeah. yeah I thought it was a great movie um, I enjoyed it yeah I thought, yeah I thought it was fun I thought it was cute I thought it was in a great vein and it had a nice little twist at the end and it kind of brought you through but it was one of those things where you stayed glued because you wanted to see the clues you wanted to see okay what's a clue what's a clue what's a clue and what can you catch and then at the end when Daniel King, you know, Craig reveals everything you look back and you're like Jesus how did I miss that I mean it was right in front of me Yeah. like how did I miss that those are fun stories, and those are yeah. hard to write. Oh yeah, because you have to, you know, you have to draw just a tiny bit of attention to something, 
but not so much that everyone's like, oh, okay, I know exactly. You yeah, know, he yeah. used the, whatever the butler. You did it or whatever. I mean, if you watch Murder She Wrote, you're wondering why do they put a close up of a blue pen? Like, why yeah. do they show a close-up of a blue pen? When they show a close-up of an item, that item meant something. You don't know yep. what it meant, but it meant something that she's going to talk about in the end when she mentions, like, yeah, I, I remember seeing the effects in the police, and there was a blue pen there. The problem is that that blue pen was owned by the guy who you killed, because yeah. I remember him using it to sign a document. Now, how did you get it? And that's what it was. So that's why the camera panned on that blue pen, and why when you write it, you might say the effects were a keychain, a blue pen, or blah, blah, and you just kind of screw it over, but yeah. you've already mentioned the blue pen before. Now, did you put the two things together? There was one scene in one of my books where Tessa, Patrick Bauer's daughter, was um, caught in the back of a police car, and um, the bad guy's driving it, Richard Bass is driving it anyway, and he's going to take her and do terrible things to her. Well, I'm like, how is she going to get out of this police car? And I literally had no idea. So she'd been going to the prom, and um, she had a little pocket purse with her. So mm-hmm. she empties out the pocket purse, and I just start listing stuff that would be in a purse, like lipstick, and she had a little notebook and a little knobby pencil and perfume and a lighter because she smoked. And anyway, just a bunch of little things. And I was like, now how can she get out of this police car with these items? And finally, I ended up landing on this idea of her using a perfume bottle as like a flamethrower. <laughs> yeah. And so she lights the, lights the lighter, you know, and then sprays the perfume bottle on the back of this guy's neck and his hair gets on fire, stuff like this. But, um, but when I list all the assets, I kind of just list everything in her purse, and then I said something like, and as soon as she saw those items, she knew what she was going to do, end of the chapter. And readers are like, what's she going to do? Yeah, like, you know, what are, what of these items is really going to help her escape? But it took me forever to come up with that and then hide it in the sense that, you know, a reader might have got, uh, might have guessed that she's going to do this, but probably not. And then when How many comes, MacGyver though, episodes did you watch to figure that one out? I know, right? <laughs> I did find out that flammable and inflammable mean the same thing when I was writing <laughs> I was like, is it flammable or inflammable? And they're like, that's the same thing. Like The same thing. What? Yeah. How can flammable and inflammable be the same? But they are, so anyway. And this is another thing, cause this, and this, this leads to the same point. Shannon and I's first date was we saw Stephen King speak when he was talking about his book Insomnia. So it was after oh, his wow. accident, and he had just written Insomnia, and he was talking about his book Gerald's Game, if you remember Gerald's Game. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... He wrote that, and, but he had no idea how was he going to get the girl out of the bed who was already yeah. tied up to where he had to tie his daughter up on the bed the same way that he wrote and said, okay, now how are you going to get out of this? <laughs> and he had to try to watch her get out of it so he could figure out how is he going to get the girl in the book out yeah. of the predicament she was in on the bed. That is interesting. And... You know, uh, like I read Gerald's Game years ago. They they did they turned it into a movie. Now it's they on did. Netflix. Yeah, they just turned it into one. I think Netflix. Yeah, Netflix. Yeah. And so, but uh, I remember reading it, and basically the whole story takes place in that one room, right? And that then cabin, woman, yeah. Her memories of when she was growing up and 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 stuff like that. But I'm like, how are you going to keep the attention of readers? And plus, she's like chained to the bed or whatever. Yeah. And you're like, how are you going to keep the reader's attention for 350 or 400 pages? But the um, dog, but, 
<laughs> he's he's pretty he's a master at it. Yeah, because you know you hear because the husband's lying on the floor dead. If people don't know the story, yeah, the husband and wife went to a cabin and they were supposed to have a very romantic you know sexual encounter where he tied his wife up on the bed and he ends up dying and she's yeah. stuck on the bed and she can't move and the cabin doors open and like well what can what's in the cab what's in, what's in the woods that can walk in let's see you have raccoons you have bears. You have squirrels, you have dogs, you have different items, that, things that can come in, and she's helpless of any of that. If somebody wants to come in and eat her husband, that can happen, and she has to just sit there and watch it and then wonder, am I next? Yeah. And that's the kind of tension that he kind of builds throughout the, throughout the story with little things. I remember him, what was it in that book? And I, I read it so long ago, but I think that the screen door kept banging at times, and that was like driving her crazy. Something yeah, I think so. And there was a dog, you know. And there was a dog. Came, and you're yeah, like, oh my yeah, gosh, he's already was. had Cujo. What's this dog going to do? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, people, I think, underestimate Stephen King as far as his writing and storytelling. And Oh, he just writes horror. No, he doesn't just write no. horror. He writes everything. Horror, Remember, thrillers. he wrote Stand By Me, people. He wrote yeah. Shawshank Redemption, people. He wrote The Running Man. He wrote Hearts of Atlantis. You know, he wrote uh, many different other stories that are not horror at all, but just a regular suspense yeah. mystery. He wrote, a, he wrote a fantasy book, Eyes of the Dragon. I mean, yeah. you know, he wrote The Dark Tower, which was total fantasy. It wasn't horror at all. That was like a Western fantasy yeah. thriller. Yeah, it's pretty astonishing. So yeah. I, think that's, I think that's cool. So, so, um, so when, okay, so we touched on horror a little bit. Um, Tell me, have you seen any good um, horror movies recently that you thought, oh, wow, that's something I haven't seen before? A uh, horror movie that I have no if I've seen before. You know what? There was that one that we talked about. Um, what was the come, name of that story where the guy, the, the, the guy who, who, what was it? He would, he would keep killing them over and over again. Yeah, yeah, come back to me. Come back to me. That one was interesting. Yeah, that um, was interesting, you know. I know people have talked about Get Out. The only problem with Get Out was that I thought it was very predictable in, like, the first, you know, 20 minutes what was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I so, wasn't as big of a fan as that as a lot of people were, and I was kind of, I was really looking forward to seeing it because everyone was talking about it. And, and yeah, I and, I was a, and I was a little taken back. Um, but a lot of the horror movies are kind of re, you know, regurgitations yep. of older ones, and they just kind of up the ante by either making it a little bit more gory or, you know, to that effect. I mean, I've, I've always been the person to say I thought Halloween was the perfect horror movie because yeah. it had zero blood, and it was a suspense, yep. and it was a mystery. Because there was a mystery element to it. Who the hell is Michael Myers and why is he doing this? Now we see in the brand new Halloween that actually what they tried to talk about was actually false. That Laurie Strode was not the sister of Michael Myers. Um, but just caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Hmm. And they just had this connection. Yeah. But um, I thought that that was the best horror movie ever made. Because yeah. of the effects of it was very suspenseful. Um, the music made it. It was kind of like a Jaws, and I, that's you just didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know who, where he was going to show up, and all of a sudden, you know, you see Annie in the doing her clothes, and he's just standing there watching her. I, and it's like that's freaking creepy, man. 
Yeah. You didn't need to have all this blood and this gore and the screaming and the yelling and all these other things like what Rob Zombie did, which he just made it too outlandish. I know he tried to change the story and talk about Michael in his younger years and why he did what he did, but it was still too on the gory side, and the story got muddled by all of that, and I wasn't really a big fan of, of that. Um, because to me, horror are the things that, you, uh, that scare you or the things that you don't see, not the things that are in front of you. Because once it's in front of you, it's no longer a horror, but it's something that you have to deal with. And when you're reading a book like an It or something, it's those things that you don't see. It's yeah. those things that those noises that you hear. When you watch the movie It and you see that red balloon, you're like, uh-oh, something's going to happen. Something, something's coming. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but now he's in the dream world and something's going to happen, and now that's what you're kind of waiting to see what happens. And, and it's that red balloon. It's the same thing as when you hear the music. You know something's happening in Jaws yeah. or Halloween. Stephen King just uses the red balloon. At that, you know, for the, it's the same effect. When you see it, something's coming. And that's the good thing. That's the thing that, that, that gets you going. Amityville Horror was kind of the same way. You know, even though it was a totally false story, it was, it was still very good in the fact of, why does he wake up every day at 3.15 and wander the house and it's cold and this and that? And it explains. And that was good. And there wasn't a lot of gore in that, in that movie either. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of all the, you know, blood and gore and stuff like that. It's just... I think it's I don't think it's Yeah, I don't think it's necessary. You know, um, no. I, I don't know if we've ever chatted about this, but there was a movie called... Uh, okay, so Billy Bob Thornton was in a movie. That his, his, like, first movie, The Lawnmower... Uh, oh, wait. What was the Lawnmower Man was a Stephen no, King short story. No, not The Lawnmower Man. It's called Sling Blade. Called oh, Sling, Sling Blade. Blade. Yeah, that was an older one. Yeah. Yeah, an older one. And so at the end, there's a scene where um, Billy Bob Thornton has this lawnmower blade. And he says to this other guy, I aim to kill you. And so the other guy's like, he doesn't believe him and stuff. And then, like, they talk for a minute, and he's holding this lawnmower blade. He stands up, and he walks over, and the other guy's, what are you doing with that? And all of a sudden, the camera pans up, and you don't see it. You just hear, yeah. you, just, you know, you, you hear this chopping sound, and it's terrifying. And you're like, they don't show blood spraying everywhere. They don't show, nope. but it's because it's in your imagination, it ends up being terrifying. I was at a writer's conference, and I was talking about that one time, and I got my words mixed up. And I said, all of a sudden, Billy Bob Thornton raises this lawnblower maid. And everyone's like, what the hell? What? A lawnblower maid? I was like, oh, man. Yeah, he raised the maid and threw her. And I know, right? <laughs> There was this Hallmark movie my wife was watching one time, and this guy needed, it was one of those western prairie romances, and um, so this guy needed to get his arm amputated, and this is a Hallmark movie, right? So they're not going to show anyone, you know, amputate his arm. So instead, like, they show the doctor pull out a saw, then they pan back away from the building, but all you hear is, and that's it. And I'm like, my wife was watching, and she screams. She's like, that's terrifying. So now whenever I want to mess with her, I just walk up to her, and I go, Exactly. But you don't see the blood. You don't see anything, but still it's terrifying. Yeah, because you know what happened, and you're just like, he just must have chopped that person up in the limbs. I mean, yeah, and that's what you know. And that's the good thing, and that's the part of it. Because here's the other thing. People are always like, well, I write horror. 
okay, we'll do you. Okay, because maybe what you think is scary is not scary to me. What if I find the Matrix scary? That's yeah. horror to me. So, you know, I find it terrifying to think that we could be stuck in a world that none of this is existing, that none of this is real. Um, now, I'm very Buddhist, so I already believe that. But I could be stuck in this world where I'm really stuck in a, and I'm being used as a battery. Like my actual body is someplace else being used as energy force to create this world that everybody thinks is rosy. I'm like, that. That's horrifying to think. That's, you know, yeah. you don't need a guy walking into your house with a knife and slitting your throat in your bed to be scary. And a lot of different things can be scary. You know, you don't need the kidnapping of a child or something like that. And that's the other thing, people. Two things. All you have to do is mention rape. I don't need to see it, and I don't need to read about it. And you better not do anything with a child. If there's yeah. anything with a child, that's an automatic see ya. Again, if you want to mention that the child, something happened to them, I don't need to see it or hear it in graphic detail. There's no point. That does nothing for me. I yeah. already know that rape is going to take this person's mind into a totally different way. I don't need to actually see it. Yeah. You don't need to show me that. That's something you can just gloss over. Because if you get too indebted into that stuff, you're going to turn off a lot of people. And don't kill an animal. I mean, don't kill a dog or a cat. Plain and simple. If you think that you're going to kill a dog or a cat, don't even put them in your story. Don't even do it. There was uh, there was one of my books where someone kills a dog, oh. and I heard you, from you, people. And you took crap for that for weeks. I know, right? I heard from people. There's this one lady who wrote to me. I can't believe you did this to this dog or whatever. And finally, she wrote me back, and she's like, "Do any of your other books kill dogs?" I'm like, "Man, I don't think so." And so, you know, I wrote her back, and she's like. I like your writing, but just don't kill. I'm like, who is this? Like, why is? Yeah. And all of a sudden, she's like on the PETA board or something like that. Like, I looked her up online. And I was like, okay, well, I get it. You really don't want me to kill the dog, but but you know when it worked? You know when killing a dog worked? John What's Wick. That? Oh because, man, because then because he with used John Wick, that he... as the revenge to get back at the people that killed his dog, which was like his child. Yeah. And like it works, because people. now you're getting revenge for the dog. The dog's now going to get justice. And that's, so it worked. Now, um, I was just looking over my show notes here a little bit, and I noticed sure. one thing I was going to ask you regarding Suspense Magazine. Yeah. What was it that first got you interested? Because I think the magazine came first, before yeah, so Suspense Publishing. How did you Here's get the story of this that? one. If people remember, of course, you know, Barnes & Noble and, you know, of course, Borders, which was yeah. no longer around, people, and it's still today, when you walk into a Barnes & Noble, the first thing you see in Barnes & Noble are the, are, the, are the little bookshelves or the little display cases and the tables. Now, the yeah. one thing that I always tell people is, okay, whenever you see those tables and those display shelves and those shelves, every single book that's on one of those tables, that, that space was paid for. The yeah. publisher paid to have that book on that table. That was not Barnes & Noble being nice saying, you know, oh, we think these books are good. No, that was all paid for play space in Barnes & Noble. It's the same thing in a grocery store. When you see end caps, people, that's not, you know, your local grocery store being nice and throwing the ho-hos out there or the cereal. That was paid for by the manufacturer to get their product on those end caps because those are the where, that's where the most uh, visibility is. Yeah. So 
when you walk into Barnes and Noble, and my wife and I would walk in there, and we would walk in, you would always see the same twenty authors, the same twenty people, all the time on these display shelves, and the new releases, and everything else. Another Patterson book, another Kessler book, you yeah. know, this and that, whatever it is, and. We went home, and I was like, you know what? I go, there has to be more. There has to be authors everywhere that we're not finding. Yeah. I went to search out. I couldn't find any good, concise place to where you could find this together. So I sat in bed one night, and I said, you know what, honey? I go, screw it. I'm creating it. I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. And she looked at me, and the first words out of her mouth were, she goes, don't ask me to help you with any of this. Oh, funny. <laughs> now, 11 years later and 87 issues later, she's like the main catalyst, I mean, in doing yeah. it. But um, that's, that's where it started from, for a lust of wanting to know about more authors and more people. And now that this world has opened up, I think I've done over 550 podcast shows, probably interviewed over 1,000 different authors at this point, and talked to different people and realized there's a whole other world out there besides the best, you know, the, the New York Times top 25 bestseller list. Yeah. Okay, there's a whole other world, people. There are so many other great stories and authors that you probably have not read about, and that's unfortunate. So when we started the magazine, our, our motto always was we wanted to give every author a chance to showcase their work to fans. So that's why we interview anybody from the debut author to the Stephen Kings and everybody in between to try to showcase great writing, great work. And the other thing that we do in the magazine, which we started at the very beginning, was we do not write a negative review ever. Yeah. <clears throat> that doesn't say that we don't not like books, but if we don't put a review in our magazine, because we, we call them book reviews, but they're actually book recommendations, hmm. because there's a lot of books that we just simply tell the publicist, sorry, but we just cannot review it because it's just yeah. not good. But we're not going to trash it. That's not our responsibility. So we basically call them book recommendations. So anytime you see those reviews in the magazine, those are books that we have reviewed and we have said, these are good books, yeah. and this is the reason why. So all the books that you see in there are all books that you should probably read because they're good in some form or fashion. You just have to decide what's, you know, what, what style of book or, or what you're interested in, sure. if you're interested in that thing. But So that's what we did, because, and, and I don't like people and on that do that, that write negative reviews. I just don't think that that's helpful to anybody. It's not helpful to the author. It's not helpful to the fan. It's not helpful to anybody because that's one person's opinion is yeah. that if, if you didn't like, you know, a lot of people don't like Star Wars The Last Jedi. I, I, I like it. But if I listen to everybody else, I might not have seen the movie. I thought it was a great movie. I thought it was yeah. great. I thought it fit in perfectly. You know, was it what you wanted? No, but that's the whole exciting part of it. If you knew how Luke was going to die and people were like, well, he should have gone this way, then what, where's the suspense if it happens the exact way that you wanted it to? Because you know what, people? Life doesn't happen the way you want it to. And that's why you either are sad or mad or happy or whatever emotion. Rian Johnson brought out an emotion in you in that movie that you might not have had. And if you want to say you hated it, that's fine. However, he still moved the story forward and still gave you information and still had a lot of great stuff in there that you can use to go forward. And if people yell and say, oh, well, yeah, Princess Leia flying back to the ship, yeah, I got one word for you people, Ewoks, all right? Return of the Jedi is the worst movie in the Star Wars trilogy, in the Star Wars thing. And I'm going to tell you, people yell at me when I say that, but if you think about it, 
How did the Ewoks build the most elaborate ambush system in the history of the world in that short amount of time when everybody was fighting and they needed to get the, the shield down from the Death Star, and uh-huh. they built that most elaborate system with the, with the logs and the things coming to kill the, the walkers? And everything. How'd they build that with nobody knowing that this was happening in the middle of the Empire? Like, really, people? Think about it. I mean, that's like some common sense. Like, these little creatures built all this stuff, and they knew where they were going to walk, and they did Come on. Get over it. <laughs> that's so funny. And, but, and the way they killed Boba Fett, he accidentally hit him. Um, the, be, the worst, you know, the best bounty hunter if people are watching The Mandalorian. Do you think The Mandalorian is going to die because Han Solo is like Boba Fett and then turns and hits him in the backpack and he flies him down into the hole? That, that's how he's going to die? Really? Come on. So <laughs> Return of the Jedi has many, many holes, but people love it because it's part of the original trilogy. And I'm like, yeah, I think it's the worst out of the seven or out of the yeah. eight movies. I, it's the worst one. But I get, I get lambasted for that, so I'm like, well, whatever. But you, you, you choose to believe what you want, just like in Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban. You know, it's the same kind of thing. You gave Hermione a time machine so she's not late for class. You didn't think to use that any other way? Boyd Morris and I talk about that all the time. We always laugh about that. <laughs> we do. We always laugh about the time machine. Like, hey, Boyd, don't be late for class. He goes, I know. That's all I can use this for. <laughs> I love that uh, when you guys look at books, you, you're not out to trash authors. You're not out no. to, to ruin them or anything. There are some r- review places where it seems like that's their goal. Yes, I agree. To read a book and just like come up with the most clever way of trashing it that they can. I I'm agree. not into that. I don't. I, don't I, mean, I agree with you. It doesn't help anybody. There is a episode of Murder She Wrote called Deadpan, and I think it's like season two. It's near the end where. What happens is that there's these two critics that are kind of at odds with each other. Well, uh, one of the critics kills the other critic, and that's the whole mystery. The problem is, is the reason why he killed the other critic. The reason is, is because that first, the, the, the killer was a young playwright who wrote a play that the other critic absolutely trashed, mm. ruined his career, and he never wrote another play again. I find that so sad. Yeah, Like one guy, one person's opinion said, I don't like it. And the guy never wrote again, so he held it against him for years, and that's when he ended up killing him. So if we do that to somebody, and all of a sudden that author is like, oh, my God, Suspense Magazine hated my book. I'm never going to write again. I can't live with that. Yeah. I can't live with that. That's well, not for me to determine. Kill you at the end. <laughs> no, that's not for me to determine at all. Yeah. That's, that's, again, that's my opinion. You know, and you can take my opinion for just what it's worth. It's the, it's the nickel. It's a nickel, man. It, 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 that, that, that's all it is. I'm one person. One person's opinion. So what, do you guys have, what do you guys have going on right now? Do you have any new books coming out? You wanna, you wanna yes, let, we uh, do. Listeners we, have a, we, have, we have a book coming out. I can't give a lot of details, so I'm sorry if I'm a little cryptic. That's all right. But I will say this. We have a short story anthology that, that, that's going to come out, and Jeffrey Deaver is the editor of it. Oh, fun. Um, and we're going to have 13 short stories inside of it. And the premise is nothing good happens after midnight. Um, and so every story will start right after midnight and kind of end before dawn. It's going to kind of be in that same premise, ten uh-huh. to ten, nothing good happens after midnight. It won't be out until probably around October or so of next year. Yeah. But we're putting that together, and that's, and that's going to be really good. I mean, we've got a lot of great authors included yeah, in this one. And so people are going to, uh, hopefully people are going to love this one because we've seen some of the stories coming in. And it's, what, 
when you give an author a premise like that and say that's that's your only parameters go, it's yeah. great to see your guys' minds and what you guys decide to come up with. <laughs> we're and, a bunch, know, but not we're just twisted. yeah, but you know we also have um, Joseph Badal just put out a book called Justice. He's a two-time Tony Hillerman Award winner. Great book. Uh, oh, wow. One of our other ones, really Nickel. He's an action adventure in the same vein, you know, of like um like a Clive Cussler. People like Clive Cussler, James Rollins. Yeah. You're gonna like Willie Nickel. He just put out one called Hostile Waters. Sheila Lowe. I think uh, you know Sheila. You've interviewed her before. She's the handwriting expert. Like yeah. she wrote yeah. handwriting for dummies and you know expert and stuff like that. She has a newest book in her uh, Claudia Rose series called Proof of Life. Um, that's a great story. So um, we have some good ones coming up. The other big one is Shannon Kirk. Uh, you know, she's the one who did Method 1533 from Oceanview, got rave reviews with that book. Well, we, we're publishing the sequel called Vibrary Grove, and that's right. going to be coming out early in 2020 in the spring of some time of 2020. So that's very good. So we got a lot of great things on the horizon that we got coming up. Um, yeah, that's super. That's yeah, good. Uh, we're very busy. In fact, our 2020 schedule is booked, and we still get submissions all the time, uh, but right now we just can't take any anything on because 2020 is booked up. So I always tell people, hey, if you can wait, you know, we'll get to it eventually. But you're yeah. looking at 21 at this point before anything at all is going to be published because with our current authors and what they're doing and then this anthology coming up and we took on a couple new people, um, then – yeah, it's gonna. We're 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 busy and we're booked up, which is good. We just you know, like everybody, you just always have to sell more to keep you know because authors get a, you know you have to keep you know authors up you know like with yourself. I'm sure if yeah. you see your royalty checks are a little down or your advances are getting smaller or your sales, you know, you get a little frustrated and you wonder why, you know. And John Land even made a mention not too other you know the other day. He goes. Books are not selling like they used to for anybody. I don't care yeah. if you're Patterson. I don't care if you're King. I don't care if you're Coons. I don't care who you are. There's so much supply out there. It's now outlasted the demand because mm. anybody can write a story. Anybody yep. can publish it on Kindle and put it out there no matter what it is. So you have all of these books out there. And you're just not sure which ones to pick. You, yep. you, so people have to. So you need to figure out. People got 25 bucks to spend on your book. Are they going to buy your 3.99 ebook, or are they going to buy the? Are they going to spend the 25 bucks on a Lee Chaddle book that they know? And that's yeah. where you have to find out. That's the pie that everybody's trying to to struggle from, and it's difficult. It, yep. it, you know, yeah. it's not easy. It's difficult. So, but. I always try to tell people, look at the publishers and research them if you're not sure. Is it the author that just put his name as a publisher? Yeah. And he, and that, so that publishing company only has one author, and it's the same guy? It's self-published, people, if that's right. the way that it is. So you can see who the publisher is when you go on Amazon and you, know, you go buy Kindle. It'll tell you all the information, who publishes the book, when it came out, the whole nine yards. And if it's no one that you recognize, just... Just go to Google, type in the name of the publisher, type in Suspense Publishing, and then you're like, oh, well, they do blah, 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 blah. So they're legitimate. Uh, right. Okay, good. Because that's what, you, that, that's what you get when you get a book from a publisher that's legitimate. It's been through the process. So you know it's been edited. You know it's been polished. You know it's been perfected. You know that we put all the work into it because it was, you know, eight or nine people instead of one person that yep. put this book together. So that's the important thing. Just like yourself, you know, you were under Penguin, um, and you're under Baker and Ravel. Those are big publishers, and people are like, oh, 
they're reputable. So yeah. this must be a reputable book. Now you can go. Well, that's what we hope for, you know, and, yeah. and um, that's one of the reasons, you know, that we do this. This podcast is to really, you know, highlight new voices, highlight old voices that are telling great stories and get, having people like you on that can really kind of tell us a sweeping big picture kind of look at yeah, publishing and where things are at. And you guys are doing good work over at Suspense Publishing and Suspense Magazine. So where's the best place online for people to connect with you or if they want to subscribe to the magazine, where, where should we point them? Well, suspensemagazine.com is where you'll find all the information. As far as getting the magazine, we make it very easy. Um, you know, we just give it away. So yeah. if you want to, you can send me your email, uh, and I'll put you on the list. But if you follow us on Twitter at Suspense Mag, if you follow us on Facebook, we're on Suspense Magazine. If you just go to the website, um, you know, you'll see the, you'll see the new issues up there because we post them up there. I mean, we put them out everywhere, and you can post them, you can take them, whatever you want to do. We just want to give you the information. Yeah. Um, and, and that's the biggest thing is, is, you know, we just want to get as many readers and fans as we, as we possibly can to read the magazine so you can then discover a whole new world of people that you might have no idea that they were even out there. It's funny when I tell people, you know, that we're doing this book, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, and Jeffrey Deaver is going to be the editor, and I have people saying, who's that? Uh-huh. And I have to sit there and say, okay, you remember the movie The Bone Collector with Denzel Washington? Oh, yeah, I remember that movie. Yeah, okay, that's the guy. <laughs> you know, he's also the guy who's going to have Lincoln Rhyme as an NBC. Uh, you know, he's doing the, the, winter, the winter break series. NBC's putting a Lincoln Rhyme uh, series up. It's oh, I didn't January. Know that. Wow. Yeah. So he's now going to have Lincoln Rhyme on the TV screen, which is something that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and that's where Hollywood falls out too. There's so many, so many great books out there, and so much great source material that I don't know why they have to keep rehashing the same stories over and over. I don't need to see another freaking dirty dancing or something. Come on. <laughs> you know, I don't need to see the same story again. Well, John, it's been great chatting and catching up a little bit, and also just, always, I always enjoy your stories and just your perspective. You, um, it's just, it's always fun. So, we've, um, I've loved having you on, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. I'm sure we'll probably see you this summer at Thriller Fest up in yep. New York City. And so. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening. My um, website, stephenjames.net. You can see which books I have out and available there. And um, I know that The Bishop was one of my books uh, that I wrote a number of years ago that was a Suspense Magazine pick for the Book of the Year. So that was Book of the Year. Yeah. And Synapse yeah. was close. Got a lot of votes, and it was like right up there. It was really well, close. Well, thank you. Yeah, but our no, best so, of issue yeah, will be name. out soon. I'm not sure when the show will air, but if, my guess is the show will probably air after the best of issue is already out. Um, so people can go grab and see who we have the best of for 2019. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's a good point. So best of issue. And so, uh, everyone, thanks for listening. I hope that um, your holiday season has gone well. And as I like to close up by saying, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Thanks, John. We'll see you next time.